I can't remember who's starting. Is it me or you? Uh, I think it's me. You're starting. Am I starting? Yeah. I thought you were starting. No, you're starting. Am I? I started last time. Oh. Oh, no, it was me. No, sorry. We're both sitting here looking at each other like, your turn to start. No, it's your turn to start. (laughs) Your turn to start. (laughs) Sorry. Go on then, off you go. Right, I will start. Okay. Hello and welcome to Izzy and Gina Institute's informal conversation about life in general and art and embroidery in particular. With me, Gina Ferrari. And me, Izzy Moore. Hello, how are you and what have you been doing since we last spoke? I am very well, thank you. Um, what have I been doing? Yes, the usual thing, being occupied with my courses. Swirls is up and running. We've had a few weeks of that now. I've lost track, really. I think we're three weeks in. And the things that they are starting to produce are amazing. I just looked quickly this morning before this, and there were two absolutely incredible pieces of work. Absolutely put me to shame. Really? Yeah, absolutely amazing. Fabulous. So I've put them on my stories on Instagram so people can see those on yeah. stories well that's that's a job well done from your point of view because that's what we do as teachers isn't it so yeah it's it's so satisfying and um the thing is I said this will probably be the last time I do this course and the more things come in I think oh this is rather amazing but um anyway we'll see never say never <laughs> never say never and so while they've been doing that I've been looking at seascapes and a bit of a procrastination in that I haven't actually started doing any more stitching for the course, but I've been chugging my way through my tick list, doing all the easy wins and getting some good, you know, good old stash of ticks on there. So I've been doing things like writing the welcome blurb, setting up the Facebook group, um, doing all these things and I've found a whole series of lovely quotes about the sea so I've been mucking about with Canva and making just making everything look pretty and if eventually I'm going to run out of things with ticky boxes that I can do without firing up the sewing machine so I'm now actually doing the work yeah. yeah so I'm galloping up on the point where I'm actually going to have to start doing some more stitching on it so uh, that's been fun and then lastly I've been doing some jobs in the house I think spurred on by our discussions about um, getting organized and things. I've been eating my elephant one spoonful at a time. Very good. And tackling, (laughs) yeah, so tackling long-standing projects like uh, doing a little bit above our bedroom door. It's partly to block out the light, but also to look pretty. So with some old wallpaper scraps um, on the fan light. So that was fun. And I am approaching the point now where I might start making the bedroom curtains. Making curtains would be low down on my list. <laughs> well, we do have curtains, but they're they're not particularly effective. So now we're getting into the summer and it's getting light earlier. It's becoming more of a pressing need to get this yes. done. When we moved here, it was summer in July. And the only room that didn't have any curtains or anything was our bedroom. They'd taken them. And it's a big window and I didn't have anything that would fit. They'd taken down all the fittings as well. So I needed to make a blind. And I think we went two months being woken up at about 4.30. (laughs) (laughs) 
I did make a blind eventually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my project, the reason I've been procrastinating is because it's this huge idea I've had. You know, those fabric samples you get um, from furnishing shops when they do their chuckout at the end of the season, yes. all the little samples. I've got a whole stash of them I collect when they put the bin outside the shop and they say, you know, fill a bag for three quid or whatever. I've got several of those bags and my idea is to make a massive patchwork. Right. But I've got to make four of them because we've got two windows and there's two curtains on each one. So, yeah, but I think I might make a start. I might make a start. Good. So that's me. How about you? What have you been up to? Yeah, I'm good. Um, Again, much the same sort of thing. I'm pottering around doing bits of my course but done lots of gardening as well but I had a bit of a sort of a wake-up call I suppose I, I had a couple of weeks ago I'd gone into the studio on a Friday and potted about and did bits and pieces and I did record some videos but it just felt like I hadn't achieved anything and I felt really sort of a bit down about it and I don't really get down much and so I woke up on the Saturday and thought right I'm just not going to think about work for the weekend and did the garden and it probably coincided I think I mentioned a good friend of ours lives in the next village part of our drama group had died of pancreatic cancer and been very quick yes I mean he called me in January to let me know so it was it's a particular a particularly nasty one it hits and it hits hard and he was only a couple of years older than me and I thought you know I shouldn't at this age you know I actually get my state pension in a couple of years perhaps I should be thinking about winding down and doing the things I enjoy doing and not always feeling this pressure that I should be working and being productive. And it was actually a good change of mindset. And so I've thoroughly enjoyed pottering in the garden. I mean, it, it comes along with the good weather as well, doesn't it? I think. Yes. Yes. And I've got seeds everywhere on my windowsills. I'm sort of looking here. What are you growing? What have I got? I've got some sweet peas I've grown from seed. I've got mange too, and I've got French beans that will all probably go in pots and containers. And mm-hmm various flowers and yeah I've got some marigolds <laughs> and I've just put my name down for an allotment oh. that's, that's part of my retirement plan wow we had one years ago but it was a little bit of a walk too far to walk with carrying your spades and things well ours are just behind our church and you've seen how close I am to the church I live opposite the church and the allotments are literally behind the church doesn't have water which is sort of a bit of a downside but we're close enough to transport stuff people do people manage so but I used to grow vegetables I had vegetable beds in the last house and I kind of miss it so yeah so that's me that's a change of mindset I suppose yeah just uh, yeah yeah, easing off a bit and it's kind of went back to our time management thing and what's important yeah, and you know, what is important about life. And so we've spent time with the grandchildren as well over the last weekend. It was lovely. Brilliant. Out playing. <laughs> yeah. Good. Excellent. So shall we move on to our main topic, which is, I think, quite a, a tricky one. I know a lot of people are quite interested in it. It's pricing. How do we price our art? Well, should we start? So I, I wrote a list, as I want to do, um, but we don't have to chug through all of it. Um, so just really quickly, the first one on my list was, why are you selling it anyway? Is it because it is your business, your what you are doing is your career to make art and sell it? Or is it 
a hobby or are you selling it just because someone has asked you like a family member oh is that for sale I'd like to buy it because I've sold work like that actually yeah um so one of my aunts said um she saw something I put on Facebook and said oh that's wonderful I'm looking for something for our stairwell you know is it for sale right so um I sold it to her so that can be interesting can't it with friends and family it's tricky with family yes I had a painting that I put up probably last year on Instagram or Facebook as part of the artist support pledge um my sister-in-law said oh I'd love that and I said I can't charge you that that's you know <laughs> your family I'll give it to you and we came to a compromise so yeah, yeah. it's yeah. difficult isn't it it is because some people as well this has never happened to me but I know it does happen to people family friends they almost expect to be given it for either not for free or for a very small price just because they're friends and family and I think this leads on to another thing on the list which we wanted to talk about about valuing our work and how other people look at our work and what we do yeah particularly it's complicated when it's sort of friends and family because you've got all sorts of other relationships and things that going into it yes um and then the other thing I thought is where are you selling it are you selling it so like our little I I when I start again ages ago when I was doing a lot more felt making I made a series of felt bags and they were all done in one piece, one piece of felt, like a pocket of felt with a handle. It was all integral and it was lined with these different fabrics. And I did trims around the edge. Some of that was machine embroidered. And so they're quite dainty little bags. And looking back on it, I'm not sure what you would use it for. I took one to a wedding once (laughs) I made a white one and it had this sort of uh, vivid pink fringe on it and my dress was black and white so it was quite um, bold and uh, right and it was a useful little size to take to a wedding so I took them to our little local craft fair and I think I I mean obviously each one took by the time I'd made the felt and finished it off and done the lining and the edge, it took several hours. Sure. And I wanted to put a price, like a double digit price on it, probably something like 20 pounds or something. And in the end, I think I put them on for nine. Giving and, them away. <laughs> yeah, well, and then someone came, came along and looked at it and said, you know, and they were still too expensive she wanted to pay something like four pounds but that's then i know it's the wrong market though and that's exactly i said i didn't agree with you earlier on this one because you said where are you selling it you've got to find the right right market to sell it yes if you are selling at a little local craft market it's about comparing it to other prices and everything's cheap yeah because people are expecting to pay between sort of naught and no more than 10 pounds really for what you're going to find in the little market hall down the bottom of town on a Saturday morning however if you went to like they used to have an art and craft fair in Chelsea at Chelsea Town Hall yeah there you're going to have different people who've got the stalls there do it for a living and the prices are what they should be exactly but it would be the same product but a completely different price 
Indeed. Um, so I think it is important where you're selling it. It does affect the price because it's what people are expecting to pay when they go along. So when you go to a gallery, you know, one of these white wall galleries, you know, lovely, lovely, lovely people are expecting the prices to be in a certain bracket, aren't they? You know, they're going to have sort of yeah. high, high double digits, three figures for most pieces of work. I think that's probably why I disagree, though, because you've got to be consistent about it. And so you can't be selling stuff cheap at a market and then expect people to treat you as an artist and sell in a gallery. No. So you've got to actually decide where you sit with this. Are you a hobby maker and you're going to sell stuff cheap? just because you're covering the cost of your hobby. And I've been there. I used to do little cross-stitch cards and stuff like that when I first started stitching. And I do, you know, the school would have a craft market and you'd go along and you'd sell them for a pound each. Well, you can't even get a card in WH Smith's for a pound, can you? Yeah, so, I, I remember doing that when I was yeah. doing silk painting years ago. One of the first things I did and sold were these little silk painting cards. And right. I used to sell them in this little gallery that sold handmade cards and I did a craft fair and I sold lots of sort of Christmas themed silk painted cards of shepherds and wise men and all these <laughs> little things. Yeah, I think I've done that too. <laughs> yeah. And but by the time you, you bought the silk and the paints and the cards and da, 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 I sold them and I was like, yeah, I've got some money. But it probably didn't even cover all the materials. No, but it gives you sort of enough money to buy some more silk paints. And that's the way you work when you're doing it as a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need to approach this us now. So how do you actually go about pricing your work? Do you have a formula? Do I have a formula? Or do you yeah. have a formula? How do well, you do it? I, I don't know whether this dates back to my degree or not, but I do remember being told that, number one, you give yourself an hourly rate, and that's another debate altogether, isn't it? Because, you know, do you work for minimum wage? Do you work for £20 an hour? Where do you even start with that? What is the average salary of an artist to even be able to reverse engineer it and come up with an hourly rate? I don't know, because it depends who you are, doesn't it? Exactly. You know, if, if you're a big name, your hourly rate's off the scale. But... And also, if you're starting where we all started with earning zero, how do you... Yeah decide what a reasonable hourly to, rate is anyway yeah. carry used on to do pretty much minimum wage i think well maybe yeah. let's just say for example 10 pounds an hour so you've set that you then need to record how long something takes you to make again the debate does it do you include all that thinking time planning time sketchbooking time not really i used to just include how long it actually took me to make the piece perhaps a little bit of time for the planning but you just can't factor in i finished a piece that i started on the tansy hagen course and there was the painting of the fabrics and then it got left for a day and then the collaging and it got left for a day and then i did a bit of stitch and i left it for a bit and then i did another half hour then i did a few solid hours on it and you can add that time up can you but you know you've got to be quite disciplined about it ish because there is yeah. a lot of sitting there looking at it going hmm and head scratching yeah. so do you charge for the so you know you get a ballpark figure by doing that anyway yeah and then you add on any of your costs like your fabrics your materials your framing and threads do you apportion threads if you've only again used a, you know a little bit how much of a reel of thread do you use it does get really complicated so you've now got this sort of figure ongoing 
And they then said, you've got to factor in a percentage for your light and electricity, your heating, all that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, all your overheads, and yeah. Overheads, that's difficult, isn't it? So yeah, imagine you can do that. And then, you know, if you're really serious about your work, then you need to double it. Because if you want to be represented by a gallery, you cannot undercut a gallery. If a gallery is selling your work for £300, you've got to sell it. To you can probably do sell it to £275 to 280 you can't undercut them you can't then sell it for 150 no and you've got to allow for them taking their massive cut which is probably around about 40 well, that's like it's 50 yeah. percent most galleries that's yeah. why you you double so yeah you, this is the price i want to earn from this and this will give me a, some earnings and so you've got like a big profit set so buying direct will be cheaper because I think people will accept a gallery has overheads, but you can't really undercut them. You could get away with it if it was open studios, if it was a one-off event you were doing in your own home, maybe. Sure. And people yeah. took the effort to go and visit you in person. Yeah. But yeah. no, I think you're right. If it was, if you were selling work consistently on your website and in a gallery, the prices have to match. Yeah, they do. I think otherwise the gallery would get very upset. Oh, they would, and they wouldn't want to represent you. No. Yeah. It's a tricky Which, one. I've never been represented by a gallery. Have you, Gina? Very, very briefly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go as far as say be represented. <laughs> it was a gallery in Cambridge. I don't know how I managed to do it, and I'd made some book covers. I don't know whether somebody had come to the open my open studios, maybe, and I was selling these little sketchbooks with these embroidered and worked book covers for twenty five pounds at the time. And they said, oh, we'd like some of these. And they, I went in and they were up for 50 quid. So yes. they sold one. Yeah, see, that's the thing. But I got, 25, I got the 25 pounds. They got 25 pounds, yeah. Yeah, at least you got what you were selling them for anyway. Yeah. So, but the problem I have with that formula is that it leaves you with a stonking price. Oh, it does. At the end. So I don't actually yeah. use that. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but it gives you exactly. a ballpark figure to give you an idea of how perhaps you should be valuing. Yeah, it was funny when I, when I said we were going to talk about this. I said to Stuart, we were walking the dog. I said, I just make it up. <laughs> and he said, you can't say that. <laughs> no, said, but it's true. But it's true. In some ways you do. Yeah, because my formula, such as I have a formula and, you know, you know me, I, I like having systems and sort sure. of... Uh, ways to work things out but my formula is what price would feel really uncomfortable like I felt that they were actually stealing it yeah. <laughs> and it was being you know I was just basically giving it away or paying them to take you know there is a price that would make you feel that's really not not good and there is a price where you'd feel happier with it but then there's also a higher price where you'd think that's really cheeky. I can't ask that. That's just. But I have been there. Have you? Well, I guess it was when I was exhibiting with Prism and I had a series. And again, it was valuing, you know, going into another thing. What do other people sell their work for in a comparative sort of market? And this is also touching on location as well. Yeah. So it was, yeah, London Gallery. And I had a three pieces up for, at the time, 300 and something. Um, and it was the only time I ever covered my cost. It wasn't much, but they were quite small. And somebody bought, and I thought, oh, that's a lot of money for those, because I knew they, they were quite easy to make. But that leads on to another thing we'll come, we'll come back to as well, won't it, about easy to make. So if somebody is willing to pay the money, you're not 
diddling them or I know having I a know, laugh, are you? I mean, it's a no, but in them. my mind, yeah. But in my mind, I need to feel comfortable with yeah. it. And so there's the price at which I feel robbed, and there's the price at which I'd feel I was diddling somewhere, someone. And in the middle, there is a price that I think is good for me and it's good for them and it also shows that I value my work yeah um so that's usually what I do it's a compromise isn't it there there is Mm. one other thing that I've done yeah and it's a bit of a ridiculous thing when I've had something I don't know if you've done this as well when you have a piece of work that you like better than something else Mm -hmm. maybe the same size do you put a higher price on it if you're more reluctant to sell at what price are you willing to let something go yeah that really isn't because it that's what I mean yes yeah and because I know there's a there's a few pieces um that I've put in Etsy that are probably a bit too high because they're really they were really important to me yeah you want them to go to somebody who values it yeah yes so that is a bit difficult though when it comes to being consistent um because i in a way then my pricing regime is just done on a whim or how i feel about a work it's not necessarily something that someone would be able to predict they go on to my etsy shop if people are looking i mean i've never really made a big thing about selling work i have sold some things but people need to see or be able to know roughly what sort of price a piece of work by me would cost yes and so my approach up until now has not been very professional at all because there is not really that consistency I think that's the most important thing really is to be consistent and to keep records so you know and it's okay for your prices to increase yeah but I don't it's not good practice for them to decrease no no No. see I've been I was very good at that with my workshops and talks when I was taking bookings for that making sure that each year I looked at my rate and made sure it went up a a tiny bit because obviously you take the booking and when you do the talk it's a year hence so you've got to allow for that yeah, and there's a market, isn't there? I mean, you, you know, yeah. certainly when you used to go to embroiderers guilds to do talks, a lot of them had a set amount they pay. Yeah, there's an expected yes. level. So that brings us on to um, sort of what other people are willing to pay and this idea of perceived value, oh. the value that's placed on our work by other people. That's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think within that, I've said, you know, if, if if you put your prices very low, people will perceive that your work isn't of any great value. You know, if you undervalue, and that shows you're undervaluing it yourself. Whereas yeah. a higher price sometimes indicates to somebody that they're getting something of higher quality. Exactly. They think they're getting exactly. something good. Yeah. And I think, um, so it's tempting when you are doing something, like a lot of people do, particularly, again, with textiles but not just textiles actually painting as well if you're just doing it for a hobby and someone says oh I'd love to buy that there's that temptation to just do a knockdown price yeah but that can be hard on people who are doing it as part of a 
you know part of their work yes. and wanting yeah. to have their work valued and to be able to sell it at a reasonable price um so saying oh it's just a hobby and just saying oh I don't know 20 quid that in a way it's not valuing your own time and um, skill that's gone into it and it doesn't help this perceived value of textile arts true or and again textiles do we help ourselves by undervaluing it compared to paintings and I mean it's a a sad fact you will not get as much money for a piece of textile art as you do for a painting certainly for the comparative amount of work that goes into it no there is that as well and that's what you know we touched on with the whole art versus craft debate as well with where textiles fits in that that's all linked with this perceived value and so the price for a piece of textile art will that always be lower than the price of say a painting of an equivalent size probably but again and this is a really difficult one to touch on is quality now I mean that this comes to mind because our nearest town has an art society that has an exhibition and I have put paintings in there in the past and the quality varies very much from a hobby painter where the perspective's a bit out or (laughs) things aren't quite right to some really lovely stuff and you know if your hobby painter tries to sell a painting for the same price as the people who are very skilled it doesn't work does it so you've got to be realistic about the quality of your work as well yes I think so and know and it's knowing where you are um in relation to other people doing the same thing um how your work compares are you at the beginning of your journey or have you been doing this for a few years and you're actually getting quite good um what prices are the equivalent sort of people charging for their work I think that's and that almost that's a a big indicator what are people working like you and selling charging and I think that the key there is selling as well just because you see somebody like you selling a piece of work for 500 pounds if that work doesn't sell it's not worth 500 pounds is it you it's no point setting a price exactly it doesn't sell so you know you, you need to look at people who are selling who are similar to you yeah. who are successful and what are they charging yes. yeah so it's it's this juggling between a price that the market will be willing to pay at the same time as valuing it as a a valued piece of art absolutely mm-hmm. so like going back to my little village hall craft fair the market wanted to pay the people there wanted to pay about four pounds but that wasn't appreciating the value of the piece because it was the wrong venue. Yeah, the wrong place so, and the wrong the wrong place customer base. And the wrong customer base. Yeah. yeah. So it's finding it's finding your people, looking at other people who are in that space. Yeah. So it's doing your research you. as well, isn't it? It's doing your research. Yes. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, you just got to feel it's got to feel right to you you've got to feel that you by setting that price you are valuing yourself and that the right person will come along and they will be happy to pay that price Um, which was another point that I had because I was I sold 
three pieces of work through a conference centre. I was asked to put my work up with a few other people at a local conference centre. Right. Which I jumped at because I thought, oh, this is a whole new audience of people right, yeah. coming through. And it was in the corridor so people could see it on their way through to the various seminars. And someone got in touch and she wanted to buy at least one and there may be another. And she ended up buying three. And then, of course, she wanted a discount. Yeah, I've had that before. Come to Open Studios, want to buy all three. How, what's your price for the three of them? <laughs> and I think, hang on a minute. This isn't, you know, three for two or whatever. And that was a very uncomfortable situation. Yes. And I had to go through it to learn a really important lesson and that is you know this isn't this isn't you know the souk we're not into haggling here no um the price it is what it is because i value my work and the right person who will also value that work will come along and they will happily yeah. pay that price and, you know you're, you're doing a job yeah it's my it's yeah. work for us it's work and that's different and i think maybe yeah producing art's unique in that way you know this is what it costs to make my work you know, what do you work for per hour sort of thing to somebody I th- else? I think people assume as well that because, oh, we sort of partly do it for the love of it and, oh, it's, you know, it's a lovely, fun thing to do. Therefore, we don't need to be... Yeah, but you don't get that in other, for it. other careers, no, that's what, do you? That's you know? what I mean. You get a lawyer, you mean. pay him for his serve, you pay extortionate rates per hour for a lawyer to represent you. You don't say, oh, but you quite like doing this as a hobby, so do you? So Exactly. Yeah, or an accountant who's yeah. happy in their work. You don't expect them to charge less because they enjoy it more. Yeah. No. So, but there is that with art, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Which does, yeah. you know. Have we spoken about size as well? I don't think we have. No, I don't think we've touched on which is, the issue of size. Yeah. You know, size matters. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Because, particularly with hand embroidery, to do something really quite diddly the amount of work that's in that and going back to your formula with the number of hours worked that can really rack up and whereas textile art or in paintings even you just get a bigger canvas surely and a bigger brush you know um or just some bigger pieces of fabric and you can zip through it on the same machine you could make a bigger piece in less time than it would take to make a small intricate piece yeah I mean I've sold some quite big applique pieces mounted on canvases that I wouldn't say I could churn them out but it was a a process that I knew what I was doing and I knew they sold and you could equally do a tiny little piece that took as much work but you can't quite charge the same for a small piece as you can for a large one always or could you I don't know it depends how it's valued I suppose again whether people collect your work or interested in having your work yes Yes. Yeah. I do think it does affect the perceived value, though. People look at something bigger. I think it does. And think, yeah, and think, oh, is that it? <laughs> or look at something <laughs> bigger and say, yeah, I think it's worth more because it's a larger. It's a bigger yeah. statement, yes, isn't it? it? Is. It's going to be yeah. a bigger statement on your wall. Indeed. And I suppose in that sense as well, it's a bigger investment um, in terms, not just money, but also the space you need to display it it's going to need more thought in terms of where you put yeah. a big piece so maybe that then attracts a bigger price because uh, I don't know you maybe you're not going to sell as many because they're bigger do you think we've covered I think we've pretty much covered everything we've been very efficient today 
We have been efficient, yes. I have finished with a statement that says, the most important thing is value your work and don't set your prices too low because it's unfair on those of us making a living. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, letting things go cheaply because it's just a hobby does make it difficult for other people. It does. Yeah. And um, personally as well, I think the consistency, being consistent yeah. um, with your strategy. So, I mean, having having a talk through like this has been useful to me actually to realize that yeah I need to simplify mm. and then yeah just stand stand by my prices Indeed. and be and almost take emotion out of the equation yes that's the hard thing isn't it in a way when it comes yeah when it comes to letting go of work um just uh yeah I think yeah. That's been my my takeaway from this that I need. Well, to... I think yeah, I, I stand by what I said very flippantly. Oh, I just make it up. I probably do, but making you know, but it, coming to a price with this information about how long it's taken, where I'm now standing in the market, the fact that I'm earning a living, and all these things, you get a feel for it. So it's not yeah. just making it up. It's no, you know, and I have also had the other way I have had which I might have to dust off again is this idea not quite a flat rate per square inch but an idea of a price bracket for pieces that are this size pieces that are this size and pieces that are this size sure and then take and then tweaking it to allow for the amount of work or whatever or how it's presented so whether it's framed or not we haven't touched on framing actually have we I think actually framing and presenting work would be a good way a good another good discussion altogether actually that was it's yeah. another whole yeah. discussion isn't it yeah so um so that that helps you give it so it's not just plucking this figure from the no, air no it's not it's it's an informed it's an informed decision yes yeah but, an informed guesstimate but I think the keeping consistent which perhaps I'm not entirely good at, but and keeping good records, which again I'm not very good at, <laughs> is important. But I think that is actually just because neither of us has ever had creating and selling work as our primary focus True. for what we do. I, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've done open studios, and I am going to do it this year. And I've got a lot more paintings than textiles for sale this year. So it's going to be interesting. I haven't really thought about pricing very much. I mean, I've got some, they are inside our village pub at the moment. Um, but of course, yes. nobody's seen them for a year. <laughs> but, but I did sell a couple of pieces off yeah. the wall there for when it was open last. So that gives, they, 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 were, oh, they were paintings with stitch, actually. <laughs> so I've got an idea yeah. of, of prices. Yeah. So I suppose because I have always done open studios, I have always sold as well, but it's, not consistent I've not been in galleries all the time and then with prism as well and it's funny you know just talking about that sort of large sum when I sold I've, I've sold a couple of times that actually then covered my hanging fee for hanging in a London gallery <laughs> which was extortionate and your train fares up to hang the work deliver the work your train fare up to collect the work and another two days for your stewarding while it's up there <laughs> I broke even so it's not like I even earned any money from that. So, you know, it's no. And then we're doing it for the exposure, aren't we? <laughs> Which is another another discussion as well. This yeah. is another topic. Yes. 
so Jane got in touch and said in the 80s she was at home with small children and made embroidered boxes she used scraps and leftovers so no materials cost just her time I decided to figure out who might buy them and what for concluding it was the sort of gift you might buy for auntie for Christmas so how much would you normally spend on the present at the time I guessed it was about eight pounds so I priced around that of course if you're selling at an event people can take it or leave it but it helps you gauge if you've priced correctly although by that time it's too late isn't it probably yes you can't in the middle of the event suddenly change your prices can you no. um anyway somewhat unusual pricing policy but it worked for me i was as i wasn't trying to earn a living from it um so i thought that was interesting yes. thinking about the recipient and the sort of that people might be buying it for a present and what sort of money would they be spending on it as a present for somebody for Christmas? Yeah, that say. is sort of identifying your market, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yes. So that, yeah. that was, but it's an interesting take on it. And then Mara got in touch and said, um, she's just a hobby stitcher, make things for my own pleasure and to learn new techniques. I usually say no to commissions and hate asking for money and give things, often give things away. Recently, I passed my box of finished pieces, mainly samples, to a couple of friends. And between them, they bought about 20 items. I now have more storage space and £100 in my pocket. Not a lot, considering the hours spent stitching, but they are delighted to display my work in their homes. She was my gold medal candidate sitting. Oh. Her work is stunning. I would buy her samples. So her friends got a bargain. They really did get a bargain. Well done, Mara. That was a bargain. I know how gorgeous your work is. (laughs) I know I have put some samples in a nice mount and sold them mm-hmm. and people have been absolutely thrilled with them. But then I, I've done the presentation nicely and, and also, the work if it, in. yeah, and the work and, and I put the work in and I suppose if I made it for a sample, it doesn't mean that I would have put any less effort into it. So we can talk ourselves down and say, oh, it's just something I threw together or whatever. It was just a yeah. teaching sample. But actually, there is still artistic merit in it because... Just, yeah, just because you didn't make it as a piece of as art. As a piece of art doesn't mean it doesn't have value. No. And also, if it's perceived value, it has value to someone else. They might see it sure. and go, oh, I because... Yeah. It's almost like sold. a side product of our teaching, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because yeah. a lot of the things we make is, you know, it is for teaching. Yeah, sure. Okie oh, dokie. I think we've covered right. that then. I think we have. Mm. Okay, fantastic. That's very efficient, Gina. <laughs> Was I being bossy? <laughs> no, you're not being bossy at all. Have you got any diversions and discoveries this week? Yes. So I've got, I said to you before we started recording, there's a short answer to this and there's a slightly longer answer, but it's not too long. (laughs) The short answer is I came across an interesting concept in terms of decluttering. Oh, good. I want to hear this. (laughs) Yes. In that, well, the story was there's a lady who moved house and she had boxes and boxes of stuff that weren't unpacked. And her kids said to her eventually after several years, right, we're going to sort this out and you are going to sit there and we are going to sit here with these boxes and we're going to pick things up and you have three seconds to decide and you are not allowed to touch. Gosh. Yeah. Apparently it's when you touch something, you make a connection with it 
and then all is lost. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's not quite Marie Kondo where you pick it up and... Does it spark joy? No, it's the opposite of that. You don't pick it up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So like, you know, clothes. I know if I go through my clothes and have it back, I'm going to have a big chuck out. As soon as I start trying on, I think, oh, this is nice. Oh, this is comfy. Oh, why haven't I worn this? Blah, Mm. blah, blah. If I hadn't touched it, I would have probably said, no, go. Right. So the reason, so I'm, I'm intrigued. I haven't done it because it, it's, I almost need someone to help me do it. You need me to come along with your box and say this three seconds. No, it's gone. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so you're not going to let me, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I haven't done it yet, but anyway, I found it as part of a podcast about ADHD. Okay. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And because somebody that I know very well has gone, it was starting to go through the process of saying, I think I might have this. And so I thought, oh, what is that exactly? And so I've been looking it up. Right. And then the more I've looked, the more I thought, hello. (laughs) bells ringing all over the place here and I've been listening to a few podcasts and I found myself absolutely hooting with laughter because everything they said I thought hello yes me hello hello that's, <laughs> that's me. interesting that's me so finally so much of what I do and why I do it's all starting to make sense and what normally happens with me, so a very, very quick description I've heard of ADHD. This is right. really quick. Most people, when they take in information, they have a funnel and the funnel goes downwards. It gets right. smaller. You take in lots of information. You sift what's not important. You take away the important stuff. Right. ADHD, you have a reverse funnel. You take in information and it goes, oh, hello. Oh, that's interesting. That, and it sparks 20 more ideas. Okay. And it it goes outwards. And the more you take in and absorb, the more inspiration and ideas you have, the more things to explore, the more things to do. And the more to distract you. and The more to distract you, etc. And normally what happens when I find something out and it sparks off all these ideas, I'm into hyperactive overdrive, wanting to do it all. Since I have been thinking about this and thinking actually I think this might apply to me it's like my brain is calming down it's like there's a little part of me a very quiet little (laughs) part of me probably sitting in the corner you know hands up against the wall going thank goodness (laughs) she stopped I can (laughs) yeah I can be heard now so uh, that's a pretty major discovery (laughs) Well, I've done a few sort of online quizzes, you know, with whether you think you have it or not. And right. it's looking fairly positive. Yeah. But, uh, Interesting. So I'm, yeah. yeah, so I'm feeling quite intrigued. And like I say, I sort of calming down a bit because there's a reason. And it's actually, yeah, it's just helping a lot. Just that's thinking good. that this might be a thing. Mm. So that's that's me. How about you? What have you discovered? Well, my diversion is definitely my garden, but no. I haven't really discovered anything new, I don't think, but except that the sewing bee is back on telly in the UK, which for people not in the UK, it's a sort of reality TV competition type thing where 12 people come and have to 
So three garments a week or three things a week in a ridiculously short time. <laughs> but also some of the contestants as well, some of them you think, why are you there? Are they there for not the comedy value as such, but um, sometimes you think, oh, for goodness sake. But it, it is, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean, I used to be a great fan of the Bake Off. I've kind of gone off of it a little bit. And I confess here, I had applied to go on the Bake Off a couple of times, never got beyond the application process. And you think, oh, why? You know, I can but bake. Because you're, a- yeah, you're super whizzy. Then you see some of the people who are actually on the programme. I think they haven't got a clue. Because it's not about, um, you know, sewing and baking. It's about entertaining television, isn't it? And so, yeah, it's entertaining as well. I'll tell you the personalities. My profile picture that I sent on one of my applications for the Bake Off was the picture of me wearing the cake hat. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I thought, if you don't think I'm bonkers enough to come on your telly programme with this. And they didn't, obviously. Obviously thought I was too bonkers. So they they want good characters, don't they, you know? A diverse mix as well. A diverse mix, yes. Yes, but I think three gay men this time, is it? <laughs> They're quite good. They are. They are. Did you see last night? I sort of saw it. I yeah. was distracted by trying to do other things at the same time. I watch it for Patrick mostly. Well, he is rather lovely. Well, I like Esme, I have to say. I think she's a great character. And yeah, I don't know how much older she is than me, but I think, yes, that's how I'd like to grow older. She's got great style. I think she's great. <laughs> yes, she is. I think she can be quite acerbic, but she's uh, she's very good value. Yeah. But it's entertaining and it's it is entertaining. harmless fun and it's a bit corny but and cringeworthy at times. But so the sewing bee has kind of been a bit of an inspiration because then I think, oh, maybe I'll do some dressmaking. <laughs> us for this week thank you very much for listening so we hope you enjoyed it and it was useful to you and we'd love to know what you think so please do get in touch and also consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss an episode and if you could leave us a review as well that would be wonderful because that helps us reach new people so next time we're not sure what we're going to be talking about Um, It might be scribbled on a piece of paper somewhere, but we can't find it. We're so organised. I think I've scribbled it down and neither of us can remember. (laughs) (laughs) So in the meantime, though, you can find us at ginaferrari-art.co.uk and isabelmore.co.uk. So until next time, bye. Bye. I'm just thinking it might be easier on your editing if we had a rough idea of what we were going to say and when. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) Who'd have thought, eh? (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you like the music, it's by Ixon, and you can find it at soundcloud.com slash Ixon, and the link is also in the show notes.